0: Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. In this week's interview, I talk to Ryan Wyatt, the director of the Morrison Planetarium at the California Academy of Sciences. In our conversation, Ryan discusses how he got interested in astronomy, the impact of Carl Sagan's cosmos on his life and career, the newly released reboot of the Cosmos series, and the greatest scientific challenges and mysteries of our time. I'm sitting down today with Ryan Wyatt, who is the director of the California Academy of Sciences Planetarium. And uh, Ryan, first of all, thank you for taking the time to sit sit down with us and talk to the listeners about your life in science and your career and um, have a discussion about uh, the status of science in the country and some current events as well. Um, I'd like to start sort of by learning a little bit about your personal background and your professional background. Um, How did you get interested in science initially and especially astronomy? Was there a moment in time or was it a general trend for you? I, I always had an interest
1: in science growing up. And I think as a child my greatest interest was probably more in sort of the natural world. In fact, a lot of what researchers here at the California Academy of Sciences do uh, and I think if you talked to my family or friends when I was in second grade, they probably would have told you I'd be a uh, park ranger or a naturalist of some sort. And it wasn't until I was, I think, I was seven and a half, eight, eight years old, and I, my family took a trip to the Adler Planetarium. We were I grew up in Northern Indiana. We moved to, uh, and we we visited the Adler Planetarium when I was about eight, and I saw a show there that was about, uh, in part the life of the sun Mm -hmm. and understanding that it had been around for billions of years and the idea that it wasn't going to last forever but it had a lifetime of maybe 5 billion years in the future. And that was disturbing enough. But then I also had the experience of the star projector kind of rising up in the center of the room, this giant spider-like multi-ton object. And the combined experience of that made a huge impression on me. And I became very interested in astronomy and actually, uh, coincidentally, my family moved to Arizona shortly after that. So that really heightened the interest. Um, but by the time I was getting to kind of junior high even, that was sort of wavering a bit. And, and it wasn't – it was actually uh, the experience of first reading Cosmos uh, by Carl Sagan and then seeing the television series Cosmos that uh, I began to see science not just as this sort of intellectual endeavor, but really something that's part of human existence and part of human culture. And the way in which Sagan was able to interweave ideas about culture and science and spirituality and, and, and history in a way that just is not like anything I had experienced up until that point. that made a huge impression. On me. And, and, and past that point, it really was uh, my goal to go into astronomy.
0: Is there a, a, a when you just when you made that decision and you and you had that budding interest in, in astronomy was from that point forward was there a path that you determined for yourself to set to get to reach the goals in your life to become an astronomer?
1: I think I, I set a path certainly and had intentions. I I also was and probably still am in many ways very easy to distract from paths like those. So I I I did a great job in my sort of limited opportunities in high school because I didn't go to the most academically sophisticated Mm -hmm. high school, uh, but did a great job in math and physics and took college courses in order to kind of uh, get ahead of the game in that regard. Uh, Then attended a very competitive school as an undergraduate and was kind of shocked initially because I was uh, suddenly among students with much better preparation than I had. And although uh, I ended up doing pretty well for myself, uh, the, well, the joke I often made at the time was you know, they, they invite well-rounded students into the – that was certainly the term of the time – well-rounded students uh, into the student body. And yet I felt like they had taken a well-rounded student and just slammed me against some kind of abrasive surface to smooth me out in one side, one very flat science-educated side, <laughs> um, purely focused on the physics and the math, which is what, of course, you need to do research astronomy. Uh, whereas I had these great interests in art, history, and such. And so I indulged those in different ways. Uh, so I continued this track of of, of being a, an undergraduate physics and then astronomy major. And then I also worked for our college paper, and I drew cartoons, wrote news stories, did music reviews, and then also um, was the art director of a magazine on campus. I was, at, I was going to school in the late 80s when – all of the technology around self-publishing was coming into play. And so we had all these great tools. And it actually became an award-winning student publication distributed inter- internationally. Uh, but that was certainly a distraction from, uh, from the, the science uh, education track. So that ended up playing very nicely into the planetarium world because the uh, astronomy is one of the few sciences that has this great outlet for people who Need to express themselves or want to express themselves visually and musically and and in a, in a story kind of fashion. Mm-hmm. So that ended up working out well in the end. That it was certainly painful uh, during the process of going to then graduate school and finally deciding to leave that track to become uh, more of an astronomy educator.
0: Did you know at during your your technical? Um, at, education that eventually the the real goal was to direct a planetarium or did you want to do research at one? No, time?
1: no, at no point really did I ever think that as an undergraduate or even a, as in grad school I uh, I ended up um, leaving my undergraduate taking, uh, starting a graduate program in astronomy actually space physics and astronomy which is a what I thought was an interesting combination space physics focuses on really the, the physics of the uh, of the the solar system uh, not tied to planets and such, but the uh, electrical f- fields and currents and magnetic fields of the uh, of the sun and planets and uh, and that and the solar wind and such so really looking at stuff that was um, at the time but even even now more so I would say applicable to some of these Astrophysical objects that we were looking at much farther from home, so I thought there was an interesting potential. To, from a science perspective, to take this experience of understanding the solar system environment and applying that to things that were interesting questions outside the solar system. At any rate, I was very much geared toward doing research. But um, my first real research task was working with early Hubble Space Telescope data when it was broken. And uh, I, uh, I think that could have driven anyone from astronomy, actually. So... Around that time, I started moonlighting at the planetarium in New York, in Houston, Texas. In actually, Houston, okay. so this I was going to grad school at Rice University, and uh, and I, I enjoyed that. And and as the grad school stuff was getting worse, I decided to sort of take a break, and I was uh, began managing the planetarium there, um, and then it sort of somehow became a career. Mm-hmm. So I moved from there to open up technologically advanced planetariums in Phoenix, Arizona. And Albuquerque, New Mexico, then worked at, at what that point was the early, the recently opened uh, Rose Center for Earth and Space in New York, and then uh, moved out here to San Francisco about seven years ago now. Okay.
0: So you mentioned Cosmos. We're, I'd love to learn a little bit about what it was like to experience that as a young person. Where, did you watch that episode literally as it was coming out live? And what, what was the reaction culturally as well to that series?
1: It's interesting because I kind of I missed the first run of the show. I actually caught it on its second run. So the show the show had happened, and then my sister gave me a copy of uh, the Cosmos book, which is actually a beautiful book. Um, many illustrations, but uh, also plenty of text to dig into, uh, and and reading that book over the spring and summer, really uh, just captivated me. And so it was actually the book that got me hooked. And then watching the series, and the series then was this... So it was kind of probably the opposite of most people's experience of Cosmos. And then the series was just this kind of visual representation of these ideas that uh, I had already found very compelling uh, in reading the book. So, So my experience was probably kind of backward for most people, and honestly, for my family, um, Cosmos was not such a big deal. I came from actually a fairly religious family. Mm-hmm. And so I remember one of the sequences that from the original series, and you can find it on YouTube, I think, that showed in a cartoon way the evolution of uh, creatures from single cells on up to humans, um, which actually has some kind of weird visualization issues from my perspective, but my mom turned to me and said, you don't actually believe this, do you? <laughs> and so that was kind of an early indication that some of the ideas that I would hold as an adult would not mesh well with my family. Uh, nonetheless, I certainly found it inspiring, and I, and I had friends at the time who did, and so, you know, that was kind of the late junior high, early high school kind of period. So uh, it, was, uh, it was a very you know, specific kind of experience at the time. I, ultimately, I mean, I, I did end up attending Cornell, University as an, as an undergraduate, and it, indirectly that was, was because of Carl Sagan. He's the reason I, I listed Cornell for my uh, some of my test scores, and they ended up courting me a little more than um, some of the other schools, and when I took a trip there, I really fell in love with the campus and, and the people I met. So, so that's actually what ended up inspiring me. But indirectly, that was that was Carl Sagan's influence as well.
0: Were there bits of information, or maybe it was visually for you, really what what inspired you and made you want to get more into that line of work? That were kind of takeaways that has have stuck with you since then. I mean, you mentioned the evolution sequence. Were there other things that really just sort of widened your mind and made you look at the world in a new way?
1: It's interesting because the 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 visuals in that show for me and again it's probably opposite of most people's experience were were not what had initially captured my imagination so those became so the visuals that kind of stick with me in fact are some of the real world visuals uh, and 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 Sagan's description of uh, evolutionary process he talks about the Japanese crabs that have evolved uh, shells that look very similar to the face of a samurai and his, his discussion about those kind of processes and that. So some of those sequences really stick with me. And I, last time I watched any of the show, and I didn't watch it at all at that point, it was um, about 10 years ago when it had first came out on DVD again. Mm-hmm. So um, so it's actually all the, all the visuals are kind of hazy in my mind, although I, I distinctly remember watching it on DVD and thinking, wow, you a much greater tolerance for repeating visuals and for... Um, for the rate at which ideas were <laughs> expressed uh, in the series. Although, as a colleague of mine just pointed out, you know, when she watched the first episode of the new Cosmos with Neil Tyson, that, uh, that she wanted a little bit more of that time to absorb some of the ideas, that, that this, the rapidity of the, the content in uh, the new show for her uh, was, uh, was maybe a little too great.
0: You talk about the show. Um, I'd love to talk about the reboot of, of Cosmos with you a little bit and your initial thoughts about the series. Were you surprised that 30 years after its initial uh, production, they were redoing the show? And what's your what's your initial take based upon what you've seen?
1: Well, I had a glimpse into the thinking about Cosmos and the reboot I because I worked at the American Museum of Natural History and worked with Neil. I knew that this project was in the works, Andrew and uh, Carl Sagan's widow, had tried some years before to boot something I think called One Cosmos. It was like this website. It was this early attempt at a new media exposition of some of Sagan's ideas, and that had gone not as well as they had hoped. So I knew that there were these ideas in the work and and uh, in the works, and and uh, and obviously that obviously that Neil was was involved, and um, and I really appreciate. Neil's approach to some of the content, it's vastly different from Sagan. Very different people. and the resulting shows, and in addition to just being you know the early cosmos, the first chapter, I guess, was in its time, a very different thing than what this series will be now. Uh, and, and, and of course, Neil's a very different person from who Carl Sagan was. So I think what's great about this new revisioning of cosmos or extension of the cosmos idea is that it's got the full force of Fox behind it which is kind of astonishing in different ways <laughs> and and that and that they are making such a huge deal out of it it's fantastic because ultimately I think that Tyson will honor some of much of Sagan's Ideas about public education, about delivering this message of science and uh, the light and what Sagan referred to as the demon-haunted world. And I can hope that some of that will gain a foothold in the audiences that might see this on Fox that would not have seen it on PBS or other channels. Mm -hmm. And so in the same way that I think... Maybe I had the conversation with my mother around some <laughs> visuals that occurred in the original series. There might be many such conversations that will take place uh, in other households around the world. And, and I think ultimately that kind of perspective can help uh, us face many of the issues that we're going to face. And I, I do hope, and I don't know what the plan is for the series, um, that there will be the same kind of thoughtfulness that Sagan showed at the, I think the last chapter of the cosmos series was called who speaks for earth. And I certainly hope that with all of the problems that we're facing today, very different, not unrelated in many ways, but different from what Sagan talked about in the original series that we'll have something similar that having gained this perspective, we really need to think about how it comes home Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, in fact, that's something that we think about a lot here at the Academy in terms of the content that we create.
0: I, I know in that, in that last episode he talks about the potential for nuclear war, that that was the big issue of the day and, right. and still an issue that's relevant in our, in our modern world, clearly. Yes. What, what, are the, what are the big takeaways? I mean, if, if you, you know, could design the last episode yourself of the, of the series, what would, the, what would be the take-home message? Is it still nuclear war? Is it global warming? Is it, what, are the, what are the top two or three that come to your mind?
1: I mean, climate change and global warming, uh, however difficult they may, might be, are topics that are actually kind of almost the easy answer to what's so difficult about what we're facing. And uh, I always had hoped that giving people the tools to look at problems analytically would help people move toward analytic solutions to our problems. It's clear the world doesn't work that way. And we now recognize, So, sort of focusing actually on that topic of climate change, we now realize we've looked a lot at how people approach that topic and how they react to it. And it's clear that information is part of the solution, that people understanding the process is part of helping, what will help people make better decisions, but it's not the most important. People need to be engaged uh, and emo- emotionally as well as intellectually, and we actually kind of have to play to some of our baser instincts to help motivate people to make changes. And it's not clear that we sort of have it within our individual or cultural capacity to make the kind of changes that we have to uh, in order to preserve the kind of lifestyle and, and existence that we have on the planet now. So I think the overall issues of sustainability writ large, which quite frankly – Play out in social and economic contexts as well. Those are the challenges that we face, particularly in the next fifty years to a century, that will really talk about. Will will really determine uh, where our species goes in the future.
0: You, you talked uh, about the magnitude of this being a Fox series, and I'm curious to know. You know, this might be the biggest science event for the public. For. Certainly, this year, potentially, or maybe for a few years, in addition to some NASA programs w- what was the special ing- what made cosmos possible? Was it a combination of well financed backers that invested enough money that it was literally just a financial question to build something like a new cosmos series, or what what were the ingredients that made this actually a public reality?
1: I think money was certainly part of it, but Seth McFarland's role cannot be minimized. he was Inspired by Neil, and put I think not only money behind the idea of a of a an extension of the Cosmos series, but also his own personality and his own uh, influence behind the idea. Mm. So, uh, if you wanted to zero it down to s- something as specific as a person, <laughs> I think that uh, Seth MacFarlane actually had a tremendous amount to do with it, mm. and and then worked with the Cosmos production team to ensure that they had enough creative control to do what they wanted to do with the content. At least that's my understanding from what from what they've said about the process.
0: Mm-hmm. So much of, of series like that and in, 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 uh, the educational process of coming to a place like the California Academy of Sciences is perspective of understanding time or, or trying to get a grasp on time, trying to get a cosmic perspective. I know that there, there are series and episodes that try to influence people in thinking about things that way. What are the what's the purpose of doing something like that? and how can it help? I mean, we, we were talking about climate change and other issues. Is it how new we are as a species? Is it that we need to you know spiritually come to terms with how wonderful it is that we're actually two people talking with in front of a couple of microphones and able to actually communicate in this way? What, what to you is the most impactful for a way to influence the average person walking through the door?
1: I think there are multiple facets to that, and it goes different people react differently to different ideas. So one of the ideas that I thought, that, well, in fact, one of my colleagues put it, that if we can introduce people to the size of the cosmos and the sort of the vastness of the cosmos, then all our problems will seem relatively small. <laughs> and I, I think that's a little bit of a glib approach to it, yet I think there's a little bit of merit to that. If we can, If we can sort of expand our minds to thinking about these larger concepts, and so then maybe we can bring that back home to, uh, to sort of put some of our issues in context. And then there's some more literal science kind of content in terms of how we put that in context. But, but actually, one of the things that I always thought was that, that, kind of as I had mentioned before, if people have the analytical tools to be able to address some of these issues, then, then maybe they can apply, apply them. Uh, and I think the nice thing about astronomy is it's sort of politically neutral for mm-hmm. the most part. So that when you talk about you know, rules of physics on Venus <laughs> or or or, or uh, these more abstract notions, then that can provide a sometimes science ideas that are directly applicable to what we 're experiencing here at home, or at least provide a logical structure that can perhaps bleed over into the way we think about mm-hmm. problems closer at home. Mm-hmm.
0: How about in terms of just general resistance to, you know, you mentioned your your mom a little earlier. You know, are there institutional, I mean, are there great institutional barriers that you see on a day-to-day basis to the sort of ideas that are being perpetuated by cosmos, the sort of ideas that Sagan talked about in the demon-haunted world? Is it religion? Is religion the major force? or what? And what causes that? I mean, psychologically, what do you think is the reason for the resistance to, to science?
1: I think that the... Resistance that a lot of people have to kind of ideas that are present in either a california science california sciences planetarium show or or a series like cosmos um, is a combination of of the psychological need for order and structure and, and and the familiar and I think that's more present in some people than others its, it's clear actually from from uh from psychological studies, but that taken in combination with religious or social ideas that have been reinforced from an earlier age then becomes sort of Mm self-perpetuating. So that's why I think that solutions to these challenges are extraordinarily complex because they really play into uh, how we behave very innately as humans.
0: Right. And you mentioned a little bit ago that it, it's inf- getting the right information is part of it, but that's not the entire package. Are there emo- And maybe that was the brilliance of Sagan, is that he was able to so beautifully package incredible information that was backed by science with a sort of beauty that people would just emotionally gravitate towards. Is that your perspective as well?
1: I, I, I certainly think that Sagan had a knack for poetic expression and for being able to see the sublime and the and the and the aesthetic uh, in these in these stories i mean you'd mentioned earlier the idea that you know we are actually here having a conversation with two microphones sitting in front of us from a universe that from my perspective doesn't really care about that that, that through the action of natural laws that result in eventually the formation of the planets and life and that life evolving to the point to develop technology, to create an Internet broadcast, those elements coming together to me are make a far more interesting story than stories I ever learned from my religious background, that that kind of universe is the kind of universe that I find very engaging and appealing to live in. And so I think that that's pretty demanding if you want to get people kind of scaffolded up to that kind of um, uh, perspective on the universe, and yet I think Sagan did as good a job as anyone I've ever seen in expressing that. So, so I certainly think he had a gift.
0: Are you optimistic about how things are evolving? I mean, not that there ever won't be some form of resistance, but is it getting better? Is technology merging with information in a way that this science and the scientific method are kind of being liberated by our modern tools, or do you have a different view of that?
1: I don't quite know what to think. <laughs> I, I see so many uh, positive things happening when I look at the reaction of people here at the Academy, when I look at uh, the the response I get. Uh, I deliver some shows here in the Planetarium. I uh, talk to people coming out of the theater and things like that. And people really respond beautifully to the kind of experience that they have in a place like this. And... And yet, of course, that's a very small fraction of the total population. And, in fact, one of the questions that some of our presenters have been asking our planetarium audiences is whether they have seen Cosmos. Mm-hmm. And uh, at least from his anecdotal data a few days after the premiere, he said actually not many people have seen it. So that may just mean that the overlap between Fox audiences and the Academy audience is small. I don't know. But uh, but it's interesting to think about you know what the impact really is, and and how much momentum needs to change in order to change the uh, the world around us. In fact, I think what may hold the most promise is that as we face challenges that have not only environmental but Societal inv- and 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 very human consequences. That that's where it's the kind of the flip side of the demon haunted world. Mm-hmm. That's where the 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 positive aspect of human nature I think can come into play. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that when people look at one another, and that when people understand that choices made by large corporations to pollute in an environment that ends up increasing the the incidence of lung cancer in certain areas, something like as specific as that, then those kind of events can help create a connection to people and and hopefully elevate an overall perspective that will encourage finding solutions to problems. Uh, But those kind of issues are, are very tight and focused, and by the time that aspect of humanity is engaged, it's often very late in the process to begin thinking about how we can make changes. So
0: uh, so it's definitely a challenge. Last question I want to ask you. Is there, of all the scientific facts and scientific theories that exist, is there one that you think is, so, is the most mind-blowing that you educate people about it and they just can't believe when they really grasp it that it's true? And what unknown scientific fact or unknown question would you in your lifetime like to know the answer to?
1: Well the the we already actually touched on what I think is the most amazing science fact, which is that life exists, that 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 conscious consciousness exists in the universe. Because there really doesn't seem to be any reason for it per se. And to think that, as I said, all those natural laws result in us is pretty spectacular. And then and Sagan referred to it as the universe knowing itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very beautiful sentiment. And and of course, it's that's that's so innately obvious to us that because we exist, that it's actually a kind of a weird thing to think that it would be at all surprising. And yet it really is as we learn more and more about the universe. In terms of things that I would love to learn about, um, I think the discovery of life elsewhere in the universe would certainly be a, an encouraging thing, To even if it's within our solar system, since that's probably the most likely place that we would find it. But there are also ways that we could potentially observe some of these distant exoplanetary systems and make observations that would be clearly indicative of life processes. Uh, so it's possible that we could make observations of a planet around another star very far away, and determine that the conditions that we're observing there are probably wouldn't be able to precisely, definitively say it's the case, but see conditions that are almost certainly tied to the existence of of life. And those are both attainable, I think, within our within my lifetime. That uh, if we send spacecraft to the outer solar system, we could potentially find signs of life. We might find signs of life on Mars. Of most likely, former life on Mars, uh, and I th- certainly think that as we discover more about exoplanetary systems, we are going to be uh, they consistently managed to surprise us. If we put it that way, it's like we we, we keep finding surprises in the planetary systems that we're discovering, and uh, I think it would be great if we could find, particularly if we find several where we're seeing behavior that's indicative of uh, living processes. I think that would be tremendously exciting.
0: One quick follow-up, and how how could that or should that change us if we do make that discovery?
1: I mean, I don't think it'll be as going back to a Sagan reference uh, as 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 distinct as the uh, epiphanies or the reaction that that occurred in Contact and, and uh, in his novel and the movie. Um, but I think that actually, I find, I, I came and begin to predict how people would react, but I can't help but think that. If people understood that life existed elsewhere, it would be, if not quite a game changer, at least a real epiphany and, and, and really eye-opening experience for uh, many people on, on the
0: planet. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com.